Good morning. Go ahead and grab a seat. Make yourself comfortable. Thank you, Charlie. Appreciate it. My name is Luke. I know I haven't met all of you. I'm one of the pastors here, and I am excited to walk through a passage with you today. So if you have a Bible or a device that you use, we're going to finish Acts 4. We've been moving through the book of Acts um, as a book, and it'll take us a while to get through it, and we're at a really cool place now. I'm excited about this passage. Last week, if you were here, we got to watch Peter um, deal with the Sadducees, the religious elite of the time, and he kind of taught a little bit of a master class on how to get canceled as fast as possible, um, which was important for us as we kind of discussed what cancel culture is, not just in this country, but what it means for you. What, what cancel culture means for the church on a macro scale and even down into a micro scale with your individual relationships. We learned last week that in order to not be seen as a bad guy in culture today, you'll have to do what society says good guys do. And that can often collide with Christ and his exclusive gospel. So we've had to kind of get used to this term called cancel culture. But another term that we've all had to, over time, get very used to is the one called virtue signaling. Have, we, have you heard of that before? Hey, listen, I'm not getting political either, by the way, okay? I know these, these are terms that show up in that sphere. You're going to hear it more in the political arena. That's not my goal right now. I actually had no idea what cancel culture even was a few years ago. I just started hearing people say it. It was like nowhere, and then it was everywhere. And the people that said it were usually educated. They kind of seemed smart, and it seemed complicated. So I just ignored it because I'm not a complicated guy. But if you do a little bit of research, it's not that complicated at all. It's just a flavor of hypocrisy. That's all it is. Whenever you hear the phrase virtue signaling, it's just a kind of hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is not new, nor is it complicated. In writing about virtue signaling, one guy that writes for The Standard, Nick Kosovan, he describes virtue signaling as a part of the social survival tools we use to get along with others which requires being accepted. I like that definition a lot. I think it's very helpful for me to understand it more. He's basically saying to survive in society today, you cannot totally be yourself if what you want is to be accepted. If what you want is to be accepted. You see virtue signaling most when people behave or act outraged. as something that doesn't really outrage them. Or maybe they have a, they're, they're feigning generosity when they're not being very generous. Or they're acting very sad when they're not very sad. In fact, in June of 2020, there's a young woman, I won't say her name, but she lost a great internship. She received death threats because she was caught on third-person video speeding up in front of a, a shop that was being boarded in preparation for protests that night. This was back when George Floyd was really um, at, at a fever peak in this one particular city. She jumps out of the car, has somebody take a picture of her holding a drill as if she was the one pinning the board to the shop, and then whenever they were done with the, the picture, she gave the drill back to the worker. They got back in the car, and they sped off. Well, somebody got that on video, right? And she was just drug for the whole thing. And she was just learning how to survive in a world of fluctuating approval, though, to give her some credit. This was her way of mattering, her way of being accepted, her way of being approved of, the interesting thing is the social media world was outraged at this. 
Interesting. Turns out no one likes being deceived. No one likes being signaled to, although they too were probably surviving. You see, behind a million different signaled virtues from a million different social media accounts begs one question that we have all learned to ask since the playground. What does it take to survive here? What does it take to matter? What do I have to do? What do I have to say? Who do I have to know? to be accepted in this format, in this room, in this city, in this job? What does it take? You know, last week we saw how God wonderfully handcrafted you to seek approval. You were actually made. You were customized to hunt and to look for approval and to enjoy it, really. You were customized to enjoy and thrive in the position of being accepted. Mattering matters. And the reason that mattering matters is because God has hard-baked it into your soul to both look for it and enjoy it. And before the gospel changes us, we, we basically look horizontally in different directions to matter, to be accepted. We look at it from each other, from people at work, from people at church, from people in our neighborhood. But when the Spirit of God comes and changes our heart, regenerates us, is another way of saying it. When we are rescued, it's almost as if the last piece of the puzzle is slipped into place and everything makes sense, right? We're satisfied. We no longer have to look for approval and mattering on a horizontal level. We find it vertically. That changes everything because it brings a freedom. You're now free from demanding approval from others. You're free from the need to play act, Free from the need to be hypocritical. Free from the need to bring your counterfeit version of yourself for everybody to see. Free from the need to um, say things you don't mean and not mean things that you do say. It's, it's free from the need to appear a certain way so that you don't get picked last. Free from the need of identifying yourself by what you do instead of who you are. And why are we free? Because God loves us, not because we're lovable, but because he is loving. He loves us because he is good, not because we are good. He adores us, not because we are adorable, but because he is a very good God. And now because of that, we are identified not by what we do, but by who we are in relation to him. And so what we've always hunted for horizontally, we finally, finally have vertically. We matter. We matter. You see, hypocrisy is when we don't believe all that that I just said. Hypocrisy is unbelief in everything I just said. And we have this deep fear, a really deep fear in us, that we are just not impressive enough to be accepted. And I say fear because it's paralyzing to be exposed to somebody who is unimpressive. It's paralyzing. I mean, here, this is what my flesh, just between you and me, don't tell anyone else, but my flesh, I want you to know the future version of me. Not, not today's version of me. I want you to know the version of me that I'm reaching for, who I want to be, who I mean to be, who I hope to be. I mean, isn't the version of us we're reaching for much more impressive in our own eyes than the version of us sitting in our chair today? That's how we want people to see us. We want people to see the 2.0 version of us, who we are hoping and reaching and stretching to be. We don't want people to see the unfinished, unimpressive messy version of us because that is exposing. So to survive, we conceal our mess and we signal an impressive counterfeit version of us that doesn't even exist. 
I mean, let's just get real for a moment. Have you ever, don't raise your hand, have you ever put your true self on display? I mean, really, we're just deeply authentic in a moment and then thought to yourself, I think I might have overshared. Have you ever felt the regret of giving all of yourself to somebody, telling them who you really are? Have you ever done that? How did that feel? Were you burned? Did they reject you for that? I'm going to go ahead and bet that everybody in this room has been burned. Every single last one of us has had this moment where we have given all of ourselves to somebody else just to be rejected. And I will also bet that all of us, if that has happened, it happens less and less and less because we've learned how to survive. We start giving less and less and less of ourselves out to other people. Listen, the majority of our relationships are measured, right? Measured, meaning that we don't give all of ourselves to everybody. You share your life in different degrees and in different depths with some people than you do others. That's just totally normal, right? You can be authentic but measured in your authenticity, which means I won't lie to you, but I probably won't tell you everything I tell my wife. I won't lie to you, but I might not tell you everything I tell the other men in my DNA group. That's normal. Transparency comes by trust. Hypocrisy is not a failure to be transparent. Hypocrisy is a failure to be honest. Where even the little bit that we do share has no dirt on it and we pump up the hype. This is why communal authentic community or communal authenticity, that is why that's our second value. Our first one is just to be a gospel-fascinated people, but our second one is when we are in community to be authentic. Community alone is just kind of a low bar. Just because we cram a bunch of people in a living room and call it community doesn't really mean that we can check a box worth checking. Not if we don't know each other well. Not if we can't travel with each other well. Understand each other well. So it's communal authenticity. But So this is the big question I want us to ask ourselves today. What do you want people to think about you? If you could really define that. If you could build your avatar on how you want the world to see you, what would it look like? What would be different from how you are today? What does 2.0 version of you look like today? This passage is going to be helpful. This passage today is weird, though, forewarning, okay? Very weird, very controversial for sure, and I love it because there is so much to learn in a passage like this. We have a couple in the church, this brand new church, that wanted to survive in a socially flexible community, and God is a little less than ecstatic about it, right? So he drops them dead, no joke. So let's go into 4 verse 32. This is going to be the word of God for us today. We're going to see Christ compelling and clear today. And it says this, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, 
which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay, let's pause for a moment. And I just want to repeat something I said a couple weeks ago, maybe three as well. This is, for, for us, just like in chapter two, for the 21st century church, this has become some sort of a gold standard where I often hear people say, if we could just get back to this church, this is apparently a, a pure version of the church. If we, get, if we could get back to this church, then things will be well. This is the healthy church. And listen, it's true. This church was crushing it for about six minutes, right? That's how long that they were impressive. And then they got real messy and awkward and sloppy and weird at the same time, just like today, right? They are far from perfect, but we would be right in saying that it was real. It was very real, just like today is, right? But we do have an image of a gospel-gripped people that are gripping the stuff of this world far less, We do have a very good depiction of that. And let me just say right now, that is a primary sign of spiritual formation, maturity, a disciple growing into a a deeper discipleship. We see spiritual formation here. There is a correlation between how much of the gospel grips us and how much stuff we grip. There's definitely a, a line that connects the two. And I will say this, like I said in chapter two, what we are not seeing is Christian communism here. They had a freedom to sell however much of their personal property that they wanted. They were not being provoked by authorities in the government. They weren't even being provoked by the church to put all of their stuff in one pile, sell it, and make everybody even Stephen. That is not what we're seeing here. They owned personal property, but they did not consider it private property, right? Meaning that their life was not firewalled from each other, nor was their stuff, their money. They now shared this sense of responsibility to one another that would even extend to their stuff. That's that's when you know it gets real, right there. And the gospel doesn't just reposition how they see their stuff. The gospel's actually also repositioning how they see need. Those who were in need changes. Need used to be someone else's deal. Do they need something? That sounds like a them problem, right? But now their need is a us problem. They're owning other people's dilemmas. That's new. That's new. Poverty is now this communal responsibility, not an individual one. We see it in verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. So they're not looking for the government to come by and scoop up those on the margins, those who are impoverished and take care of them because the church itself was owning the dilemmas around them. I find that fascinating, and not just me. If you read some of the ancient historians, that got the attention of empires, of Caesars, of rulers and kings. By the way, that's also a primary sign of spiritual formation in us. As a gospel-soaked people, we pick up new responsibilities. Things we weren't responsible for originally, we feel responsible for today. We see the needs of others as our responsibility. And and listen, when it comes to those who are needy, no. They don't all always make the best decisions. In fact, sometimes it's the decisions that they've made in the past that has put them in the place of being needy. And yet the gospel talks about favor given to us when we don't deserve it. That's what grace is. Grace is favor to those who are undeserving. As gospel recipients, people who have received the good news of God, That is God's favor to us, despite our attempts to run away from it and despite our best attempts to earn it. 
God's grace to us. And no, we didn't deserve it. We might not even supply the needy with what they want or what they demand. That can get messy. But one thing is for sure, their dilemma is our dilemma. We know that. You see, the gospel is one of those stories, and we talk about this a lot because, again, we're a gospel-fascinated people, but you could tell it for 50 lifetimes, and you would never stretch or even find the edges or the depth or the height or the full scope of the beauty of the gospel. I've tried for over 20 years to find and plumb the deep reaches of the gospel, and I'll never get there. The folds and the texture and the beauty and the colors and the meaning of the gospel. But one of the things that we see, if we were to come from one flank, is Jesus took responsibility for my poverty, for your poverty, for our lack, for our mess, for our our dilemma, and he made ours his own. And so we just walk in the same shape. We're a gospel-formed people, handling those who are needy and impoverished, who may have made their own messes in a way that we were handled. See, it changes everything. Listen, I know we get uncomfortable with sermons like this because it looks like the pastor's coming after your money. I'm not. I'm coming after your stuff a little bit. Sometimes our heart and our stuff is connected together. And these aren't my words. These are Jesus' words. He says in Matthew 6, for where your treasure is, your heart is also. By the way, whenever we read that passage, for wherever your heart is, there your treasure will be, typically what we'll find Christians doing is they'll read a passage like that and they'll say, okay, i got to set about working really hard to drive a wedge between my treasure and my heart. That is not what Jesus is saying right here, right? The goal is not to separate our heart from our treasure, but to treasure what is not of this world. The people of God are not a people without a treasure. It's just that our treasure is Jesus. Our treasure is Jesus. So yes, where our treasure is in Christ, there our heart will be also. All right? It's redefining treasure. And here's the thing, though, and this is why this is important. You are free to make gobs of money. Just gobs of it. You're free. And you're free to give it away as much as you want as well. It is not sinful to be wealthy or to have nice things. You are free to make as much money as you can to the glory of God, and you are free to give as much money as you want to the glory of God. If you are wealthy and you enjoy your wealth and you cannot do that to the glory of God, it's obviously a sin. But listen, you have the freedom to fill your account and drain your account to the glory of God. I mean, listen, or else it wouldn't be considered a spiritual gift to make wealth and deploy wealth but we do see it. This is what Paul says in Romans in 12, verse 6 through 8. He says, having gifts that differ, meaning that none of us are really going to have the same complexion of gifts, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Let us basically exercise these gifts. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches, in his teaching, the one who exhorts, in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Some people are gifted to generate a lot of wealth and give it away and do both to the glory of God. And I think this is what we're seeing in Barnabas here. By the way, not his name. That's a nickname. He's mentioned almost two dozen times in your New Testament. And no one, I mean, I I bet very few people knew his real name is Joseph. His name is Joseph. We call him Barnabas. That's a nickname, but it's also his ministry. How cool is that? 
His reputation was so thick for being an encouragement that no one even called him his real name. But I think that's what we're seeing with this guy. He had God as his deepest treasure. He had God. He was a gospel-gripped guy. So he felt this freedom to let his grip loose on things like land, apparently, and get rid of it. Because he understood his deepest treasure, his deepest wealth was otherworldly. wasn't on this plane with us. And he knew as much as he could give away, he'd never be broke. Never be broke. Man, that is some freedom right there. He was a gospel giver. Paul tells the Corinthian church in one of the letters he wrote to them in 2 Corinthians 8, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Barnabas is just walking the same trail as Christ did whenever he tackled the cross for us. Jesus, who himself experienced the wealth of the community of God, steps out of the comfort of that and impoverishes himself by becoming man, even a slave, even a servant, even a baby, even the cross, to make us wealthy. Barnabas sees that and says, yeah, makes sense. Makes sense that I would handle my stuff the same way. You see, we don't need shame to reorient how we interact with our finances, how we give. We don't need shame to do that. We have the gospel. We're already rich. We're already wealthy. And I'm not saying this so that you give a bunch to the church. I'm saying this so that you see the gospel more clearly. Listen, my biggest fear is not that legacy is going to be under budget. (laughs) That's not what I'm doing right now. God will figure that out, right? I'll tell you what, though. I don't want us to be atrophied in growth and joy. I want you to see the gospel clearly so that you will grow, so that you will have joy. This is important because I think some of us are super stuck here. And you might be uncomfortable. As I pre- Listen, I'm totally comfortable up here talking about money. But if you're uncomfortable with me talking about money, you might be stuck here. Right? And I bet Barnabas was not stuck. But he was not uncomfortable when people would talk about something like stuff. I think some of us are stuck and we call it financial or fiscal responsibility. Right? I don't give into the kingdom or the local church or missions. I don't give into the things of God. I don't give to the needy. I don't supply those who really need a hand up. I don't do that because I don't have enough. Friend, listen, if you catch yourself saying that, you're also calling God a liar. He's made us stewards and managers. That's his stuff. It's not even our stuff. For us to say we don't have enough to be obedient is to say that he is not a good owner and he has not given us what we need to be good managers. But he has. But he has. And listen, I'll be the first to admit that caring for the needy among us can be messy. It can invite controversy. People will get their feelings hurt. There'll be a lot of disagreements. But so what? I'd rather, I'd rather us do it in a messy way than not doing it at all. And I think that's just what we're called to do. Listen, none of this is planned. We did not plan any of this. It just so happens that we have an opportunity to be gospel givers this week. I'm going to pray here in a little bit. This, just again, to reiterate, this sermon was slotted to be given today months ago, right? But we have people in need with us now, right? We have a family, a partner, 
family, the Rias, Rick and Sandy Ria, who have a daughter who's sick with a, with a, with a big-time brain tumor, and it's costing an absolute fortune for the, them to go and be a support with their daughter while she's going through both radiation and chemo. Right? And so here in a second, we're going to pray for her, that she would be healed, that God would just be tangibly close to them, that they would feel his presence, that he would minister to them in various ways and shapes and forms, that they would feel a, an intimacy with the Lord, that the suffering that they're going through, they would know that he is with them. We're going to pray for that as a church. But I also want to give you an opportunity to give into it, to help those who are needy among us, that there wouldn't be someone among us that is in need like that, right? So I don't just want to pray for you. Listen, it'd be easy for Legacy just to write a check. We could write a check for that. We could help. But I want you to own someone else's dilemma. I think it's just a great opportunity for us to literally put our money where our mouth is, right? So you could go online. You could go on our website, tag it as benevolence, pull down the little menu. It says benevolence. Anything that's given into benevolence this week, anything will go straight to them, and then Legacy will match it, okay? And we'll, we'll make sure that they are taken care of. We'll match it to a certain degree. So if you give like $50,000, we're not giving $50,000. But you understand what I'm saying. We're going to match it to a deep degree, and we're going to do the best we can as a church of this size to take care of a need of that size. Can we agree to do that? Let's pray for them real quick before I go any further. Father, I thank you just... We could just take a moment and lift up Nicole, lift up Rick, and Sandy, and Dave, and Amy. Such a beautiful family, and they're such a gift to our body. And Father, I pray that you would be so close, so real, so unstoppable, so enjoyable to them in such a dark and tremendously scary season like this. Father, that even though the treatments aren't even happening here, that you would surround them with your ambassadors, your people, and that you would draw them close in such a tough season. And Lord, that we would be available as a church, financially and even relationally, communally, that we would be helpful, we would be available. And then first and foremost, that you would heal Nicole. Father, you are the king of biology and chemistry. You, you are the king. You reverse things at the snap of a finger. And I pray, Lord, that you would do that, that you would just heal her. But whether you heal her here or heal her whenever you glorify her body, I pray, Father, that you would give her a sense of joy and peace and endurance, that you would give her grace in a season like this. So, Lord, we lift up this family. We lift this family to you because you are the only one that we depend and trust on to do something like this. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Let's go ahead and jump back into five, chapter 5. We're going to read a few more verses. Chapter 5, it starts this way. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, 
did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things, and I'm, sh- I'm sure it did. Listen, this is bananas. This is crazy. What is happening right here, right? What is happening? Better question, does this still happen? Even if we don't even know what's happening, does it still happen? That's the bigger question. Really, they were just virtue signaling, and God disciplined them to death. I've never seen God do this with my own eyes, but I wouldn't be shocked if he still did things like this. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't bet against it. I mean, we all see karma videos online, you know, where the guy kicks the dog and then he trips over his own foot and hits his arm on the wall or something, or someone cuts somebody off in traffic and then they lose control of the car and hit, hit a guardrail and scratch their nice car up. We all see those things and kind of fist bump because we feel this sense of justice is happening. Not quite what's happening here. This is leveled up considerably from something like that. Does God react to your hypocrisy this violently? Does he? He's doing it here, right? This isn't, this isn't Old Testament church. This is a New Testament spirit-filled church. Listen, don't be quick to create distance between you and this passage because of how drastic and weird it is or how old it is. Ananias and Sapphira, just like you and me, don't presume they weren't Christians. We're not told that. For all we know, they were calm group leaders. We don't know. But word must have gotten out that Joseph sold a piece of land, and we don't even know how much acreage he sold. He could have sold a little piece of it. He could have sold all of it. We don't know. However much he got rid of, it must have been extravagant in some direction because word got out. Word got out, which is interesting because it seems to contradict the fact that word got out, contradict without Jesus talks about how you and I give. He says in Matthew 6, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Okay, but here, sometimes we see that not only does your right hand see what your left hand is doing, so does the entire church and maybe the city. That's happening right here. So what could Christ be saying here? He's not, he's not saying be so anonymous with your gift that you don't even know what you're doing. That's not how we read this. Obviously, Jesus is speaking against signaling a virtue to be impressive in your giving. He's saying, don't announce your giving because you'll be purchasing a reputation. Don't use your giving to purchase a reputation. And here, Joseph has a beautiful reputation, which is why he got a nickname, and Ananias wanted it. He wanted it. Ananias, not satisfied with being accepted in God's eyes, not satisfied with mattering where it matters. Now his wife was either silently complicit 
were exactly on the same page. Again, we're not told all the details on this, but we know there had to have been some conversation that they had with each other or even internally that sounded like, hey, to survive socially in this new thing called the church, we're going to need to do what that guy did, Joseph. I mean, that, that got a lot of applause. He sold a little bit of land. I've got land. I think I could do that. Is that what it takes? I mean, it might cost us some capital, but it could buy us some social capital, which is important. Ananias and Sapphira, they were not dropped because they kept money back. They were free to give 1%, 100%, Peter says, but because they hypocritically lied to God and his people. They were destroying community by bringing the world's hypocrisy into the church. Right? They lied to God, to the Holy Spirit, he says, by presenting themselves to have a surrendered life when they did not have one. How do you... How do you see yourself, or maybe I should say how often, do you see yourself pretending to have a surrendered life when you're around people? Do you do that? Make it look like you're much further along than you do? I mean, hypocrisy is no small sin. God's not giving it a pass here. And what Ananias and what Sapphira forgot is that they were already exposed, already understood by God in every dimension, When they projected virtue, they thought that they were just lying to man in an area that didn't matter. And God says, wrong, wrong. You're lying to me. You're lying to me. Can this be a warning to us? Absolutely. It's here for us to grow. This is here for you. It's here for me. It's here so that we could build something. This is here for us. Does not God investigate our motives and know our hearts? And when displaying a version of us that is not accurate, does God not see that? Of course he does. It says in Hebrews 4, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. And this same God, this same Spirit discerns our thoughts and discerns our intentions, even the subtle ones that we have a hard time discerning ourselves. And I know it's easy to think in your own heart as you read the passage. It's the same thing that I think in my heart when I read this passage. Okay, maybe maybe I can signal some virtue from time to time. Maybe I could be hypocritical, but I've not this far gone that in a moment like this I would lie to the church. Maybe, maybe not. But Ananias sure didn't get there overnight. Guarantee you that. It's, it started as a small seed. We learn to do this. Because we're surviving. We practice this, presenting a version of ourself that we don't even like. And I remember, I was thinking about this this morning a little bit, just, just in preparation and prayer. I was thinking about when I was in high school, not loving Jesus. I was around the things of God, but didn't love Jesus. There was local church, not too far from my high school, that would just have free lunch for the high school students every Friday. We had an open campus. We could just get in our car and go wherever we wanted. Small town, so you could go pretty much anywhere. And I would go occasionally to this church, get in their big giant gymnasium, and the youth pastor would be there. I mean, it was just an attempt for the youth pastor to get to know everybody. Pretty smart, right? Because me and all my knucklehead friends would go there, and we would get a free lunch. And I remember watching this guy, and I thought he was a nice guy. Nice guy. Nice youth pastor. Little goofy, but that's what you pay him for. You want him to be a little goofy, right? Little goofy, but I like the guy. 
And then news came out. I remember at the end of my senior year, hearing through the grapevine and then realizing in the news that it was true. He left town with one of the girls from the youth group, and they found him several states away in a hotel. Police went and got him, and they brought him back. And I remember, it's a small town, I remember the chatter. Can you believe that that happened? Can you believe that he did that? It's crazy. I knew that guy. I knew that guy. Now listen, I was a moron back then. I didn't know anything, right? I knew, how to, I knew wrestling was, was fake. I knew how to win at Mike Tyson's punch out. I knew where to buy cliff notes. I knew the basics, right? But I didn't know anything else. Here's what I knew. Nobody knew that guy. They could say that they knew him, but did they? They didn't know him. He was signaling a life he did not live. Here's the thing. He didn't get there overnight. He didn't get there overnight. Started small. In seed form. False presenting here. A counterfeit self there. Until eventually, he didn't even recognize himself. I'm not asking if there's an Ananias in us. I'm assuming there's an Ananias in all of us. Wanting a reputation by signaling virtue we do not have. And friends, listen, when reputation is the goal, authentic community cannot be. It can't be. When being adored is the goal, you can never, ever, ever be known. You see, authenticity is risky. Because the closer you let people into your life, the more of your life you give to them, the more you will be wounded whenever they reject you. It's risky. It's expensive. Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes, and you might remember this from when we went through the book in chapter 4, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toll, their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. Here are some strong words. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Woe to the person who is unknown. Woe. Woe to the person who is unknown. Woe to the person who is so impressive that nobody even knows who they are. All their faults are hidden. All their dirt is covered. All the hype is pumped up. They're hypocrites. Woe to this person. Listen, I know not everybody here is sold on our missional community model. I'm aware I know not everybody's in a comm group, nor do they want to be in one. And if they're in one, they might not be that excited to be in a DNA group or tight with other guys or other gals. I get that. You're hesitant in getting involved to that degree. Sure. I totally understand. It's intimidating. You might not find the friendship you're really hoping for. You might not. And it's emotionally expensive. But that's why it's also valuable. That's why it's valuable. As a church, we cannot promise relationships that won't reject your authentically exposed life. I can't promise that. I can't promise that whenever you let people see who you really are and you go a little deeper, I can't promise that they won't reject you. Check that. I'll promise that they will reject you. You will be rejected. I could promise you the opposite. The more you give your life in deep measure to others, the more you expose yourself, you will be wounded. If you put yourself in these positions often, you will have moments where you say, here I am, this is who I am, and they will say, no thanks, I'm out. And that'll sting. That'll sting. 
Being authentic is expensive to the soul. It takes deep risks, and it does not always win in the short term. Sounds like I'm selling it right now, doesn't it? But here's why I believe in it. In the gospel, we have a portrait of one who was wounded by our hands when he bore his soul to us, and he was pure. And he came and he gave us who he really was. He was authentic. He didn't signal his virtue. He was not a hypocrite. He said what he meant. He meant what he said. He came to us as pure as a person can come, and we wounded him. And he did this gladly to please the Father. It brought glory to God as he operates like this. He tasted the exact same death that Ananias and Sapphira did, buried, and yet he was pure. And what this does is it brings me a freedom, and that's why I'm bought in to that type of community, because we have a freedom to, to not just be a work in progress, but to celebrate the fact that we're a work in progress. We're in route. We're in transit between this place where God found us to the place where he is carrying us to forevermore, this glorified version of us. But I know one thing, if you find me on my best day, I mean my best day. I had a slamming devotional that morning. I'm full of the Holy Spirit. I haven't cussed in my heart. Having a great day. If you find me on that day, I'm still unfinished. I'm still wildly unfinished. The fact is, is the gospel gives me the freedom to rejoice and celebrate that not only are we unfinished, God is finishing us over time and one day will finish us forever. Listen, there's no one to impress. There's nothing to prove. Nothing at all. We're free to be under construction because the gospel is perfect for people under construction and the gospel is perfect for unimpressive people. Perfect for us. Friends, we have way too many shallow relationships already built around sound bites and empty words and projections of a false, different version of us. And the reason we do that is because it's really easy. It doesn't cost anything. It's not expensive to the soul. It risks nothing. This type of authenticity that we're talking about is something that has to be fought for or we'll never see it. We'll never see it. Of all the churches we could build to welcome a lonely city, Woe to those who have no one to lift them up. Of all the churches we could build for a lonely city, let's just build one where people can be known deeply and know others deeply. I think Knoxville has seen enough pretending. The Deep South has seen enough signaling. You see, when I travel through passage like this, I am firmly confronted. I have to repent. There, there's opportunities for, to, for us to repent in front of a weird passage like that, Right? We can assist the grip that we have on our stuff. That's one thing that we can do. The grip the gospel has on us. What does your checkbook reveal about you? What does it tell you? Does it reveal a gospel-saturated life or a life that is still gripping this place here? Because numbers don't have an agenda. It, it tells us very clearly. What does it say about you? But maybe just as important, assess the grip you have on your reputation. And I know because I talk to people. I know people. We say the same thing. I don't want to get burned. Luke, I don't want to get burned. I don't want to get burned. Let me tell you, it's worth it. It's worth it. I've been burned. But I also am who I am from the relationships that were expensive. 
Let me just submit that you keep putting yourself in positions to get burned. Keep putting yourself in places to get rejected. That's where life is. That's where life is. I know it sounds crazy. Find someone trustworthy and cash in. Start cashing in your chips. I know it might be hard to trust them with 100% of yourself. I get that. Spouses don't even trust their spouse 100% a lot of times. Give them one token. Let them see a piece of you, right? Start cashing in your chips. And who knows what will happen. And if they drop you, God will be there to pick you up. God will be there. And the suffering you feel from being rejected, from being wounded, from being abandoned, is a suffering you share with God who himself knows the full depths of being rejected and stung and wounded. You get to share this moment, which means you will grow closer to Christ in that moment. And listen, I know not all of us love Jesus here. I say this every week, and I know I say it because we have people watching, and we have a lot of people here I don't know. So I know we have people here who are far from Jesus. Maybe you're just scouting. You're doing a little bit of recon on the whole Jesus thing. You're not quite sure. Let me just tell you, people drop dead. God did this. God did this. Make no mistake. He will not be mocked. And to prove it, and to prove it, he came himself. Not as Ananias, but he came as one true and honest, and he also gave his life. And it wasn't his deceit that would put him in the ground. It was ours. And he did it for the glory of God and a joy in his heart. Jesus sold everything to build this church, and we dropped him for it. Jesus was totally, brutally honest, and he was true, and he was pure, and yet he comes for pretending counterfeit virtue signalers like you and like me. I just submit that there's a better way to survive. If you've been surviving, there's a far better way. It's more messy. It's far more risky in the short term anyway. But I would submit that's where true life is found. I'm going to pray for you in a moment. I just ask that you would consider joining us in transit between this place of being messy and a place of being glorified as Jesus comes to rescue us.